Would you turn with me to Second uh, Timothy? Second Timothy one. I have a, a friend who told me some years ago that we should never say no to a request simply because we're afraid. There are, there are good reasons to say no to uh, requests. Sometimes we may not have the time to comply or we may not have the energy. And certainly all of us need to, to say no uh, more often than we do. We tend to uh, overcommit ourselves. But we should never say no merely because we're afraid. That uh, amounts not only to a failure of nerve, but a failure of, of faith. Now, that's a, a principle of Christian living that I'm convinced is true. And it's the theme of the passage that I would like to read to you this morning. Paul begins his letter to Timothy, as you know, his last letter to Timothy, with this brief introduction. We talked about it uh, last week. Verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is a conventional introduction to a first century letter, as you know, and it does what introductions are designed to do. It introduces us to the writer, who was Paul the Apostle, and to Timothy, who is the recipient of this letter. Paul refers here to the fact that he was an apostle by the eternal will and historic call of God. That was his conviction. He was His teaching was not shaped and formed by the church. He didn't receive his apostleship through the apostles. He received it directly from the Lord himself, and he was aligned with that unique group that formed the first group of apostles whom our Lord sent out with authority to teach in his name. But Paul was convinced that he was second to none of the other apostles. He, was, he had the same authority as our Lord Jesus himself. His apostleship originated in God, and it issued in a proclamation of life. Paul calls the gospel here the promise of life. The gospel is not merely an offer of life. It is a promise of life. It's the means by which we, uh, as the uh, jingle goes, live it to the limit. If you want to get everything that uh, you can get out of life, then uh, the way to do it is to believe the promise of life as it is in Christ Jesus. So in summary, that's, uh, that's the point of Paul's introduction. His apostleship originated in God, and it issued in a proclamation of the promise of life. He writes to Timothy, whom he describes as his dear son. Timothy we described last, year, uh, last week as uh, young in years, timid in disposition, frail of, of health, given a task far beyond his capabilities. He was responsible for a church in Ephesus for which he felt totally inadequate. Paul writes to buck him up and get him going. Uh, Timothy was more inclined to lean than leave. He was disinclined to suffer hardship. And Paul wants to get him going. We have to do that for one another occasionally. It was good for Paul to do this uh, to Timothy, and we need to do it for one another from time to time. As John White says, there is no place in the Christian life for giving up. The warfare is so much bigger than our personal humiliations. To feel sorry for oneself is totally inappropriate. Over such a soldier, I would pour a bucket of icy water. I would drag him to his feet, kick him in the rear end, put a sword in his hand and shout, Now fight! You have Excalibur in your hands. 
In some circumstances, one must be cruel to be kind. And that's precisely what the Apostle Paul is doing in this, in this letter. These are Paul's last words, as we know. Within days or weeks after penning this letter, he was taken out uh, on the uh, on the Ostian road to the south of Rome and beheaded by Nero's executioners. Uh, executioners. So this is Paul's last will and testament to Timothy, and it is, is his legacy to the church. Now Paul ends his introduction with this uh, with his conventional greeting: grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Grace is God's unmerited favor. It is his uh, tendency to give and give and give, even though we don't deserve it. Now, that's both good news and bad news to us. It's good news because we know we don't deserve God's uh, good things. But it's bad news to us because we like to have the feeling that we have contributed something to our salvation. When we get to heaven, we want to put our thumbs behind our vest and say that we, we contributed to some extent to our presence here. We don't like the idea that God himself uh, picked up the tab. He paid the price. It's a gift. It's something that he gives to us freely without any effort or work or activity on our part. It's a gift to be received. That, uh, that bothers us. Uh, one of my favorite television ads these days uh, is one promoting a an investment firm uh, featuring John Houseman, one of my favorite character actors. He used to be in the Paper Chase on Channel 4. If you remember, he was the gruff old professor. And he comes on screen and he growls, we earn our, we get our money the, the hard way. We earn it, he says. And I like that. You know, I, I really think that's great. And we like to feel that about all of life. We, we did it the hard way. We earned it. And we like to feel that way about salvation, but God won't let us get away with that. He just uh, wants us to know that he's here to give and give and give. What we are to do is receive. That's what grace is. It is God's giving, though we do not deserve it. Uh, Mercy has to do with God's provision for the poor and and the helpless and the weak. And again, his, his tendency to mitigate and soften the trials and circumstances and tragedies of life so we're not overwhelmed. As Jeremiah put it, as he was seated on the slopes of the Mount of Olives and he looked across the Kidron Valley and he watched the city of Jerusalem burned and, and he saw the hopes of the Jewish nation go up in smoke, he said, it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not all consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning, great is thy faithfulness. That's mercy. God's tendency to soften the sufferings of life and, and soften the impact of temptation upon us so we can endure. We are so used to thinking that we deserve the very best today. We've been sold that, that line of thinking for so long. Uh, as as uh, J.I. Packer points out, a generation ago or Two or three generations ago, no, no one would have thought that we deserve the best today. That's, that's a new theology. That's a new way of, of thinking. Uh, it, as, as, uh, as Blake put it, uh, it, through this world, uh, the world is made of weal and woe. And when, uh, when that fact we rightly know, then through this world we safely go. 
the surprising thing is that we don't suffer any more than we do. And that life is not any harsher than it is. Well, the reason that we don't suffer more is because of the mercy of God. He softens the impact of life upon us. And then uh, the final word in, in Paul's greeting is peace. That great shalom, that sense of, of poise that panic-proofs us in the face of, of pressure. As John Stott puts it, grace is for the worthless, mercy is for the helpless, peace is for the restless. Uh, those of you that have heard me teach a lot know that I illustrate these three terms often from the Peanuts comic strip. Uh, Lucy is in need of grace. Uh, she's like the little girl with the curl in the middle of her forehead who, when she is bad, is, is horrid. She needs grace. She's worthless. Uh, Charlie Brown, poor old bungling Charlie Brown, needs mercy. And uh, Linus, when he loses his blanket, needs peace. And Snoopy, I suppose, uh, is, as John puts it in Revelation, one of those dogs that's on the outside. Grace, mercy, and peace, Paul says, come from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. What an encouragement that is. Then uh, he turns to a word of thanksgiving. I thank God, whom I serve as my forefathers did with a clear conscience. As night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers, recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I have been reminded of your sincere faith, your unhypocritical faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. Uh, Paul begins by expressing thanksgiving for Timothy. Actually, he thanks God for Timothy because Timothy is what he is by the grace of God. But he doesn't uh, forget to give thanks for Timothy himself, which is a good thing to do, you know. I have a friend who rarely expresses appreciation to anyone around him because he believes that will make people prideful. But that's always disturbed me because the Apostle Paul doesn't take that tack. He very often expresses appreciation for people around because he knew that we need that sort of thing. We need to be appreciated. We need to know that our service is, is, is worthwhile, that others are thankful for what God is, is doing in us. We, uh, we men need to thank our wives who are homemakers. Boy, what a thankless task. And uh, how much we take them for granted. But we need to thank them. They need to know that what they're doing is, is worthwhile and significant and meaningful to us. Uh, we need to thank our children for the contribution they make to us. We're on their back so often they easily get the impression that all they do is wrong. And uh, that we don't appreciate them. But... Uh, we need to let them know that they're very special. And we're thankful for what God is, is doing in, in their life and, and the great contribution they make to our joy and sense of, of well-being as a family. That's a good thing to do. Paul thanks Timothy, but he thanks God for what, uh, for what he's doing in Timothy because he realizes that anything that Timothy is, he is because of the grace, mercy, and peace of God. 
Now, there are some other influences that Paul points to in Timothy's life. One was that of his uh, grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. Now, we don't know anything about these women other than what, what we have here. Just this little vignette, this little picture of these two lovely now Christian ladies who formerly were Jews who taught Timothy the scriptures as he was growing up. First, he mentions uh, Timothy's grandmother, Lois, and uh, points to the influence that she had on him. I think grandmothers are great. You know, I, I, I've had so much fun watching Carolyn learn to grandmother. I never thought I would be married to a grandmother. <clears throat> <laughs> Makes me feel old. But she is a great grandmother. Uh, grandmothers can say things to children that, uh, that parents can't. Grandmothers can, and grandfathers can have an influence on their grandchildren that really transcends anything that their parents can do. Now, we grandparents should not interfere with our children. Scripture is very clear about that. Uh, a man is to leave father and mother and cleave to his wife, and, and that forms a, a marriage unit that we must not interfere with. We don't have any right to tell our children how to raise their children. Now, if they ask, that's something else. But if they don't ask, then we ought to get out of their lives. We have spent 18 to 20 years of our life equipping them for life, and, and hopefully we've done the job, and now we need to let them, let them go and be parents. But my goodness, can we have fun with the grandchildren. And not only that, when you get uh, tired of them, you can send them home, and, uh, and the parents have to take, take, on, uh, take up from there. But it is, it is such a, a great uh, thing that God has given to us as grandparents to, to feed and nurture and, and, and care for our children spiritually. Now, uh, that used to be uh, uh, it was something that uh, it was assumed grandmothers and grandfathers would do. Things are different nowadays with uh, liberated grandmothers. Uh, Ray Stedman passed on a poem to me this past week. Uh, it goes like this. In the dim and distant past, when life's tempo wasn't fast, Grandma used to rock and knit, crochet, tat, and babysit. When the kids were in a jam, they could always call on Graham. In that day of gracious living, Grandma was the gal forgiving. But today, she's in the gym, <laughs> exercising to keep slim. She's off touring with the bunch or calling clients or taking clients out to lunch. Going north to ski or curl, all her days are in a whirl. Nothing seems to stop or block her now that Grandma's off her rocker. <laughs> now, it's okay to be a liberated grandmother, but uh, don't forget the influence that you can have on your grandchildren. It is immense. And uh, secondly, there is the influence of Eunice. Timothy's mother. She was married to a non-Christian, a proud Greek that apparently would not permit her to raise him uh, either in the Jewish faith or later as they all became Christians, he very possibly resisted that as well. We know that because Timothy was uncircumcised. His father would not permit him to be circumcised as most Greeks, unbelieving Greeks, would not. And apparently uh, Lois was not able to raise uh, Timothy in that religious uh, tradition. But it didn't matter. She taught him the scriptures. 
And she had an enormous influence on his life. It is still true that the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. Timothy was a product of his grandmother's faith and uh, his mother's faith as well. And he was a product of uh, Paul's ministry. Paul was his uh, good friend, his best friend. He had been associated with Paul in his ministry. Paul had discipled him. And though Paul was off in uh, Rome uh, in prison, uh, he was still able to minister to young Timothy through his letters and through his prayers. Which, by the way, is a way we can minister to absentee friends and children. Absent friends and children. We may not be able to be there to be in personal contact with them, but we can write them words of encouragement. And uh, we can pray for them. Uh, We are in touch with the God of the universe. He's not in any way handicapped by space or time or distance. He's able to, to, to accomplish his will in the lives of others as we call on him. Let's don't forget that. We're not hampered or hindered because we're separated by distance from our, from our loved ones. As John Newton put it, thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such none can ever ask too much. So Timothy was what he was by the grace of God and by the influence, the godly influence of his mother and grandmother and by the influence of his friend, the Apostle Paul. The result, as Paul puts it, is a sincere faith. Whenever Paul thought of Timothy, he not only prayed for him, but uh, the, the, the thing that came to mind was the authentic faith that, Paul, that, P- that Timothy had. He had the real thing. He was a true believer. Now, he was solid all the way through. Paul says, I, I'm reminded of that sincere faith which first lived in your grandmother Lois and then in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason, for this reason, I ask that you fan into flame the gift that is in within that is within you. Because Timothy was authentically Christian, Paul knew that he had a gift. And so he says, stir it into flame. Now the word that Paul uses for fan into flame, the verb that he uses both by its prefix and verb tense, suggests something that's repetitive. You get the impression that Timothy's gift, whatever that was, and we're going to talk about that in a moment, was, was beginning to lie dormant. And he needed to fan it into flame. It was burning out or it was burning low. And it needed to be not reignited, but fanned again into, into full flame. When I was in college, uh, between my uh, third and fourth years, I uh, uh, worked at a, uh, for a boy's ranch up in Colorado, Lange, Rocky Mountain Boys Ranch. And my job was to do trip camping. I'd take kids into the Rocky Mountain National Forest on th- two- and three-day trips. And uh, the kids that, that they sent up there were all uh, very wealthy, spoiled brats. Uh, most of them were sent up there because their parents wanted to get them out of their hair for the summer. And they paid an enormous amount of money to send those kids up there. And they expected the best treatment. And my job was to take them out uh, for a couple of three days and, and do some backpacking. 
And uh, in the morning, I used to get up and uh, build a fire because you didn't want them to be cold in the morning and uh, drag their sleeping bags over by the fire and uh, keep them warm. And I'd, I'd stack a little bit of wood right at the right where their heads were so they could just reach an arm out of the sleeping bag, get a piece of wood, and throw it in the fire. That's all they had to do. And then I'd have to go find the horses. In Rocky Mountain National Park, you couldn't tether horses. You had to hobble them. And as you know, horses learn to go long distances with hobbles. I had to round these horses up. They'd be all over the mountainside. And it would sometimes take an hour, and I'd get them all back into the meadow, and the fire would be dead. And I'd say, why didn't you keep the fire going? Well, we're cold. Or it's wet. And, and I would seethe inside, but I never could say anything because Mr. Lane said, you just don't want to upset these kids. We want them to come back next next year. But for me, it was just a mark of, of immaturity. I wanted to, my, my thought was to pick up their sleeping bags and take them out to the lake and just shake them out into the, into the lake. It was really, it was really irritating because they wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't keep the fire going. Now, this is what Paul is talking about. Timothy was letting the fire die down. And it was a simple matter, as we're going to see, to, to get the thing going again. He just seemed, for various reasons, to be unable to do it, or unwilling to do it. The apostles fan into flame the gift that is in you through the laying on of my hands. Now the question is, what is Paul talking about? What is this gift that Timothy possessed? Well, there, there are several options. Some would say it's the Holy Spirit himself. And that we need to keep, our, our, our heart is the altar, the Holy Spirit is the flame, and we need to, to keep uh, the spirit of flame in our hearts. Others would say it was Timothy's ministry, whatever that was, in the city of Ephesus, that he was disinclined to pursue. For myself, I think it was a spiritual gift that Timothy possessed. If you turn back uh, a few pages to 1 Timothy 4, in Paul's first letter to Timothy, verse 11, 1 Timothy 4:11, Paul writes, Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. In other words, your authority is not based upon your uh, any credentials, natural credentials that you carry, but upon your, your character. Verse 13, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through a prophetic message, when the body of elders laid their hands on you. It would seem that Timothy had a spiritual gift, and specifically the gift of teaching and preaching the Scriptures, the gift of public proclamation of the word. In the days before the New Testament was completed, there were prophets in the church whose function it was to receive direct revelation from God and pass it on to the rest of the church. It's my belief that there are no prophets today because we have the prophetic words written here. We don't need the prophets any longer. But in those days, there were prophets, much uh, like the prophets of the Old Testament. And an utterance was given to one of those prophets, which indicated that Timothy had the gift of teaching and preaching. 
And the elders of the church in Ephesus laid their hands on Timothy in recognition of that gift and commissioned him to the task of teaching and preaching in, in the church there in that, in that city. And it's that that Paul is, is referring to here, the spiritual gift of teaching. Now, uh, this idea of spiritual gifts may be something brand new to you. If you were here two years ago, we went through uh, 1 Corinthians 12 and, and talked about spiritual gifts, but we have a lot of new people here who perhaps don't understand that concept. So let me back up a bit and uh, uh, tell you a little bit about, uh, uh, about spiritual gifts. And perhaps it would be good to turn back to 1 Corinthians 12, which is the classic passage on this subject. We could go to a number of places in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4, all of which speak uh, of spiritual gifts. But this is perhaps the most uh, comprehensive treatment of it. I'll just read a couple of verses here. Uh, now about spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. Verse 4, there are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them and all men. Different, different gifts, different ministries, that is, different ways in which these gifts are administered to children, to adults, to, uh, to other uh, types of, uh, of individuals. Uh, different ways of working, that is, different results accrue through the exercise of these gifts, but the same God who works all of them in all men. Verse 7, now to each man a manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. A spiritual gift is a divinely given capacity for service to the body of Christ. We need to distinguish between a spiritual gift and a natural talent. You may be a teacher by profession in a private or public school, but that's not necessarily the spiritual gift of teaching. You may have the gift of teaching, but uh, the fact that you teach doesn't necessarily mean that you have the spiritual endowment. A spiritual gift is given to you at conversion, which enables you to serve the needs of the body of Christ. And uh, Paul is very clear here. Every Christian has at least one spiritual gift, and perhaps more. No one was behind the door when the spiritual gifts were passed out. All of you have at least one. That is, you have some capacity to minister to the needs of the body of Christ. And he begins to enumerate the gifts to one there is given through the Spirit, the ability to speak with wisdom, to another the ability to speak with knowledge, to another faith by the same Spirit, and so forth. The gifts seem to break down into two categories. There are speaking gifts, gifts of proclamation, such as teaching, preaching, counseling. And there are serving gifts, the gifts of giving, giving money, gifts of helps, that is, to give practical help, uh, mechanical help to people, who's Christians whose cars aren't running, and a willingness to give of your time and energy to, uh, to uh, help those who are trying to raise children by themselves, and those sorts of things, which are, are gifts of helps. And there are gifts of administration, various gifts, Paul says, but distributed as God will. In other words, they're not something you should pray for or plead for, but they are rather sovereignly given by God, a gift to every Christian by which he can serve the needs of the body. Now, uh, the question is, how, how do I know what my spiritual gift is? I have one. 
You all have one. If Jesus Christ is Lord in your life, you have a spiritual gift. How do I find out? Well, there have been a lot of books written on this subject, and and uh, a little I saw a little personal analysis uh, that you can take, uh, kind of a question there that enables you to find out what your spiritual gift is. And those things are helpful. But frankly, I think the best way to know what your spiritual gift is is to start venturing yourself. Just, just try serving. Whatever comes along, uh, comes your way that requires your attention, that gives you an opportunity to meet someone's needs, whatever it is. Maybe it's an opportunity to teach a class of children. Or to give comfort to a recently bereaved widow. Or to call on someone in the hospital and, and encourage them. Or to mow someone's lawn because they're out of town and can't take care of their home. Or in some other way to serve their, their, their needs, their spiritual needs or their, their practical needs. Do it. Just venture yourself. We, we've passed out a sheet which will give you lots of opportunities to venture yourself. All you have to do is check that sheet and someone... Sure enough, we'll call you and ask you to help out somewhere. That's how you find out what you can do. We don't need to be preoccupied with what our gifts are. Just start start using what you have, where you can. And you'll know how to what your spiritual gift is after a while. Uh, the, the, the scriptures make, a, make the analogy between the human body and, and the body of Christ, and it's a good one. How, how did you find out what your hand is for? Did you... Uh, uh, did you Read a book to find out how to use your hand? Or did you just start reaching for blocks, colored things in your crib, and pretty soon you developed a little more manual de- dexterity and you discovered what your hand is for? Uh, I've been watching our granddaughter learn how to eat. Uh, they lived with us for a couple of months, and uh, she she would sit in her high chair and try to learn how to use a spoon. And she'd dig into the mashed potatoes and stick them in her ear. <laughs> her hair and, and all over the place and, and uh, now she can hit her mouth about two or three times a meal she's, she's doing better <laughs> that's how you find out how, how you can be useful in the kingdom of God just venture yourself instead of living our self-indulgent self-contained lives let's start reaching out thinking about other people seeing where we, where we can give help and in time God will, will make it very clear to you what your ministry is within the body of Christ. Now, the emotion that hinders us and hampers us is fear. And I can understand. There are all sorts of things that that intimidate me, opportunities that God gives me to serve that, uh, that I don't follow through on because of fear. But notice what Paul says. Paul says, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands for... The, the for supplies the reason, the explanation, the means by which Timothy could stir into full flame the gift of teaching that was in him. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. The spirit of God who indwells you is not a timid spirit, what Paul is saying. And you'll notice the verb tense that he uses. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but understood, he has given us a spirit of power and of love and of a disciplined mind. You do not need to pray for the spirit of God if you are a Christian. He indwells your heart and because he is your present possession, you can count on him to begin to manifest himself in ways that are powerful and loving 
and enable us to be self-controlled. That's Paul's argument. The spirit that we have is not a timid spirit. So don't be afraid. Jesus said so frequently to his disciples, fear not. Fear not. He, he always uses the uh, a tense that suggests continuation. Don't keep on fearing. We can't do anything about the initial reactions of fear. All of us clutch at times when we're asked to do something that's way beyond our, our perceived uh, adequacies. So we shouldn't worry about the initial fear reaction, but what, what our Lord is saying is don't keep on fearing. Don't, don't let fear intimidate you. Don't fear fear itself. Don't let it dominate you. Don't let it hinder you or restrict you or frustrate you. Why? Well, because the spirit who indwells you is a spirit of power and of love and of a disciplined mind. In other words, if you are filled with the spirit, you are powerful, you are loving, and you are self-controlled. That's what he's saying. People have asked from time to time, what, what are the marks of a spirit-filled person? How, how, do you, how do you detect one when you see one? Do they shimmer and shine and float six inches off the ground? Do they speak in a holy and hushed voice? How, how, do, you, how do you detect when someone is filled with the spirit? This is how. Are they powerful? Are they loving? And are they disciplined? Those are always the marks of someone who is spill, filled with the Spirit of God. They're powerful. Now, that doesn't mean that they're obviously powerful. They may appear very weak. In fact, the Apostle Paul describes himself as appearing before the Corinthians in, in fear and trembling. His knees, uh, one knee said to the other, let's shake when he got up to speak. And, and he was inclined to, uh, he didn't look very powerful, didn't have a uh, a, a great presence, didn't, probably didn't have a booming, commanding voice. He didn't seem to be powerful, but he was. And so will you be when you're filled with the Spirit. It, it's the, the power to leave behind an unforgettable uh, fragrance and influence. You're like windsong. People can't get you out of their minds. <laughs> and wherever you go, you leave behind the fragrance of Christ and you shake people up. You rattle their cage. and They can't be indifferent any longer to spiritual things when, when you've left. That's, that's what power is. It is subtle. It's quiet. But it's, it's pervasive. And it's persuasive. I, I read just a few weeks ago of, of uh, uh, an incident in the life of A.E. Mole, Bishop Mole, who was the first bishop of China, who went to China in the mid-19th century and opened up the interior of China to the gospel, preached there and planted churches all over the, the uh, uh, middle, the middle of, uh, sections of China. And uh, when he was in his 70s, he, uh, he retired. He was on his way back to England. He was a bishop in the Anglican Church, on his way back to England to retire. And he was walking around the deck of the ship, getting exercise. And he happened upon a little girl and her mother who were standing by the rail. And he stopped and chatted with the, with the little girl for a while, He's a very kindly gentleman. And uh, they, they chatted for a few minutes, and then he went on. And the little girl's mother noticed that 
that the, that her daughter just seemed thunderstruck, and she said, "Hun, what what's wrong?" And she said, "Nothing's wrong, mother. I think I just met Jesus." She said, "Well, that's what it means to to have power. You see, to have fragrance in your life. Our Lord, wherever He went, was characterized by grace and truth, by beauty of character." And uh, Paul says that's what can happen to you, Timothy, and that's what can happen to, to all of us when we're filled with the Spirit. We have that kind of power and authority. The second mark of a Spirit-filled believer is love. People who are filled with the Spirit are loving people. That is, they don't think about themselves all the time. They think about others. They, they aren't preoccupied with their own moods and their own feelings and their own hurts and ills and problems in life. They're thinking about others. They don't talk about themselves all the time. They don't tell their stories when they're out with their friends. As a matter of fact, they don't talk very much. Uh, our, the tendency on the part of all of us is to talk way too much. We want to tell our tales. Rather than ask questions and draw other people out and kind of feel around the edges of their life and see where they hurt, where the cracks are, where the needs are. Uh, and, and, and they do that not because it's a technique to get to know someone better or because they want to be a better conversationalist, but uh, because they genuinely care about other people. So a spirit-filled person has power and they have love. And they have discipline. That is their self-control. They've learned to master their moods and their, and their manners. They've learned not to indulge themselves all the time. They don't spend their time uh, just watching soaps and reading gothic novels. And they don't spend endless hours indulging and entertaining themselves. There's nothing wrong with escapist reading. I like a good uh, mystery every once in a while. But... But if we devote all of our time to that sort of thing, and we just indulge ourselves with our homes and our toys, and, and uh, we, our primary concern is our own comfort and our own privacy, then we are not filled with the Spirit. Because one of the things that will happen to you and me when we're filled with the Spirit is that we'll no longer think about ourselves all the time. We'll begin to think about others. And we will discipline our lives in order to care for others. Whatever it takes. That's why Paul says to Timothy later in the book, Be ready, in season and out, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and patience. In other words, be ready to serve others in season and out, whether you feel like it or not. You don't have to be mastered by your moods and your, your desire to desires for self-indulgence. You can break out of that. You can be a new person, a different person. And it all comes when we refuse to be dominated by a spirit of fear and we believe that the spirit who indwells us is not a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and of love and of a disciplined mind. Do you realize that the God of the universe indwells you? The God who created the entire universe is available to you to be put to his intended purpose. We don't lack anything in terms of resources. We don't need to be afraid. We don't need to shrink from the hard and the disagreeable 
uh, elements of, of life. We have everything we need in the resources of our Lord to do whatever we're called upon to do. Um, I have a, a, a friend. He's becoming a good friend. I hope he becomes a better friend. His name is Ron Dawson. Some of you know him. Uh, he, he comes here on Sunday mornings when he's in town, but uh, he travels a great deal. He is a, 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 uh, an authority on wilderness survival techniques. He produced a little book called Nature Bound. Some of you may have seen it in bookstores around the city. It's uh, gaining popularity all across the country. Remarkable little book. It teaches you how to survive on uh, pine bark and how to eat grubs if you're out in the wilderness and have nothing else to eat. Amazing little book. But uh, it's his contention that uh, the, there, there is a banquet table that's served out in the wilderness, and anyone can survive. That, that it's our own fault if we starve out there. And one of the interesting thing, things about the, books, about the book is that the last page is entitled, When All Else Fails. And when you read through the book and you're still freezing to death or starving to death, you can read that last page, and on the last page he, he tells his own story, how he became a Christian, and how you can come to know Christ. Amazing little book. But uh, uh, I was telling, uh, I was talking to Ron uh, not too long ago, and I asked him how he got into this sort of thing. Trains uh, the military and others in survival techniques, and he said, well, uh, he used to live in, in Northern California and worked, was on a search and rescue group. And uh, they went into the mountains looking for a family that had gone down in a light plane, and they were unable to find them until the next spring. They found them four or five months later, and uh, they had starved to death. It wasn't the cold that killed them. They had starved. And the plane had come down in a meadow that uh, had enough food if they had just known where to find it, they could have survived on through the winter, and there was no reason, none of them were seriously injured, there was no reason for any of them to die. They died because they didn't know what resources were available to them. And that's what got him started uh, training others in survival techniques. And I was sharing this with some of our, uh, we had a staff retreat this last weekend, and I was sharing it with some of the staff, and Case Waringa said, well, that sounds like us. That's just like us. Here we are surrounded by the resources of God. And we live puny, emaciated lives. We're starving to death because we don't lay hold of what we have. Now that's true. You have resident in your body, and I have in my body, the Spirit of God. And He is not a timid spirit. He is a powerful, loving, disciplined spirit. He's already there. You don't have to ask for him. You don't have to beg for him. You just believe him and begin to act on the basis of what he is. Will you remember that? God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and of, a lo and of love and of a disciplined mind. Let's put him to work. Let's pray. How good it is, Lord, to know that we have that sort of resource for those of us who feel overpowered by the demands of our life, who are intimidated by the, 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 uh, the requests that are made that are far beyond our ability, that exceed our, our training or our, the wisdom that we have or any of the other assets that we're inclined to fall back upon. 
But we realize that, that there is resident in us one who has infinite capability. There is no limit to your love. There is no end to your power. There is no limit to the, the grace that's available to us if we simply ask for it. We do not have to work for it. We don't have to prove anything to you. All we need to do is receive it. Thank you, Lord. And help us now to begin to make real in our life the truth of this passage. Help us to venture ourselves beyond our supposed uh, limits. Help us to realize that the demands upon us are demands upon you. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.